Welcome to Mentoring Moments. Mentoring Moments is a sub-series of the E-Commerce Edge podcast. It is composed of clips taken from Jason's one-to-one and group mentorship sessions. And tell me about yourself in terms of, you're, you, you said you're reinventing yourself and thinking about, okay, what, is the, what does that look like from a career yeah. perspective for me? So why digital, why e-com, why this space well, and what does it do for you? So I spent, I returned to the work world after taking some time to, to parent full time and worked in a tech company in downtown Seattle for five years as an account manager. And it was in the automotive space. And I learned a great deal about the the underbelly of the internet and inventory management. And it was 2012 to 2017. So it was different times then, but I liked the role. I didn't necessarily like the automotive world because I'm not really a car person, but I liked being a helper. And and I, I quit that job to start my own company. And where I developed and designed and brought to market a physical product for wellness. And I still have that business and it's still, it's still plugging along, but it hasn't been, I haven't, I ran out of runway. I didn't have the funds to continue and I didn't have the fortitude to get funding. And I don't know if we really have a market enough to take it further. And in the hard soul searching brainstorming process of figuring out what's next, a friend of mine reached out to me and said, you'd be really good at this. I need your help. Would you come aboard? And that's a friend, Kathleen Sullivan with Sully Sully Garman. And she's been in supply chain management for about 10, 12 years. And she needed someone to help with developing a tech stack for a Singapore client. And so I've been really having fun with researching the systems and the processes that this company needs for all the post-sale activities. And I I realized actually when I had my own company that I liked post-sale better than pre-sale, even though I'd been a marketer and a salesperson for most of my career. I really like the systems thinking behind post-sale activities and feeling like you're really making things happen in a concrete way. And so I've been 100% in just diving in, learning about warehouse management and about inventory management and order management and all the integrations and the API connections. and, And I like it a lot. I like it a lot. And this is where I need to be. This is where I want to be. So I'm encouraged by the motivation and the interest, but I realized that I've got a lot to learn. And there are a lot of people that have been doing this for their whole professional lives. And I, I'm at a juncture in my life where I feel like what I need is rather than comparing myself with people who have been doing this for eons, I want to be, I want to learn how to build my confidence by bringing in skills that I've developed throughout my career in a variety of industries and roles and natural systems thinking mind and be able to project manage these sorts of activities for e-commerce operations. Uh, And it seems like that might be a niche for me. And I don't know if it's B2C like I am doing for the Singapore client or if it's B2B, which I've done before or both. 
but I, rather than fumbling through on my own, I feel like I need a coach. And, and also I think having mentorship will bring me some confidence so mm-hmm. that I can attend the meetings and speak with more confidence and value the perspective that I have from a lifetime of working. And, and so that's where I am right now. Wow. I mean, that, first of all, congratulations on being willing to embrace the new. That's, that's always <laughs> a, you. that's always, a, can be a scary thing, especially if you're changing careers or changing direction in your career, mm-hmm. but you're wanting to leverage skills that you do have, but you're wanting to tilt those and pivot those in a new direction and apply those in a new way. Um, that can be a scary thing. So congratulations on, I guess, being willing to embrace that and being willing to embrace what you don't know and say, look, I don't, I haven't been working in supply chain for 20 years. So that's not what I bring to the table. What I do bring to the table is this whole laundry list of experiences and working with people and understanding people and having empathy for people and being able to understand what it takes for people to feel comfortable using technology. And the great thing is, I think that A, you've picked an industry that is exploding. So supply chain, especially during COVID, was so massively disrupted that I think a lot of businesses realized that they were not ready for, in particular, e-commerce as their primary go-to-market channel. And so even if they were an omni-channel business, so let's say they've got, let's say they got 50 or 100 retail stores, plus they've got e-commerce, plus they've got marketplace channels and potentially other channels, social channels, et cetera. And then all of a sudden they went from maybe a 70-30 split between say 70% of their business coming through physical retail, 30% through e-commerce. And then literally at the flip of a switch, it went like 95% e-commerce during COVID. And they, a lot of their, what they thought was advanced supply chain capability and technology, they realized that it was sorely lacking and they were not ready for the kind of scaling that was needed during COVID, particularly for internal logistics capabilities, all the way from warehousing to pickback dispatch to reverse logistics, et cetera. They just weren't ready. They were not ready in any shape or form. And neither were, in many cases, their partners, their 3PL partners, et cetera, that had to rapidly scale overnight for not just them, but potentially 20, 30, 40, 50 other clients at the same time. They just weren't ready. They were not ready for the rapid scaling that was required during COVID. And so we're seeing rapid evolution of not only technology, but processes. We're seeing the implementation of digital twin technology by platforms and technologies that, that, for example, Google is bringing to the table and various other supply chain technology partners. And it is is probably one of the fastest periods of change in the tech space that, that I've seen, for sure. And it was forced upon the industry. That's the reality. And so a lot of businesses that maybe got along with a, let's say a WMS that was part of their existing ERP. So let's say they're running Dynamics 365 or they're running NetSuite or they're running any one of a laundry list of other ERPs. Most of these ERPs will have some form of OMS, IMS, WMS technology that's part of them or a module to do and handle parts of logistics. If nothing else, then they could at least handle receipting and location management, et cetera. But most of these technologies do not have very good dedicated supply chain components and demand planning components. And so as a result of that, most retailers now, whether that be B2C, B2B, doesn't matter. Most of them that that do internal logistics themselves, as opposed to outsourcing it all to say a 3PL, or even if they do outsource it to a 3PL, 
They still need to be able to have really effective order management and routing. Plus, they need to have, particularly if they have owned logistics, owned internal pack dispatch capability and warehousing, then they need a really good retail orientated WMS, warehouse management system. So I've worked with a few of those over the years. I've worked with Next. I've worked with PeopleVox. I've worked with some of the biggest and most well-known retail orientated WMSs in the market. And I never used to think until I actually went through an internal implementation of a WMS, a new WMS, when I was working at HealthPost, until I did that as an internal resource, I was working as the e-commerce manager of HealthPost at the time. And we replatformed literally every single piece of technology in the business during the time I was there. So we, we replatformed ERP, we replatformed our OMS, WMS platform, we implemented new marketing automation technology, we did system integration with point of sale system, we implemented new loyalty platform, we implemented new e-commerce platform, we, we implemented, so we went from a small bespoke ERP system that's based in New Zealand, as this is where this company is based, we implemented NetSuite, we implemented PeopleVox, we implemented full omni-system integration, replaced Magento with big commerce enterprise. We implemented enterprise authentication and a whole bunch of other technology. But until that time, I understood theoretically what solution architecture around WMSs was. And I understood how the data needed to flow and all those things. And I even understood a little bit about warehouse design and things like chaotic put-away versus versus other forms of put-away based on human-understood warehouse setups. For example, mm -hmm. most warehouses before chaotic put-away, they're based on oftentimes just either alphabetized, like the warehouse will be alphabetized by a brand, or it will be alphabetized by category, and then brands within that category on the shelves. So that humans know without the if you don't have an advanced WMS that allows for chaotic put-away, which can take up every little nook and cranny in the entire physical warehouse space, and it will tell you exactly where to go to pick a specific product. In absence of that type of technology, you need to be able to have a way for humans to know where they go in a warehouse to pick a certain product. And so before I actually implemented as part of that business, a new WMS platform, I didn't really think logistics was that sexy. I didn't think it was that I didn't think it was that game changing. I didn't think it was that complex. I didn't really I didn't really have an appreciation of just how amazing really good pack pack dispatch technology is. I didn't really have an appreciation for things like automated carousel systems that can move items from one end of a warehouse to another. I didn't really understand how game changing pick to light for example could be. I just it was when we had to implement a new WMS, it was opening up an entirely new world for me that went way beyond the theoretical. And now it really got into the nuts and bolts of what makes an efficient internal logistics capability, what that actually looks like in practice, and how things like, for example, chaotic put away, which means that there's no fixed bin systems for specific products, and there's no fixed bin locations for any specific product or SKU. I learned things like that can save up to or reutilize up to 25% more warehouse space or save you 25% more warehouse space over having fixed bin locations where you may or may not fill that entire location with a specific SKU or set of SKUs. And even me, who had been in the industry at that stage nearly 20 years by that point, I'd been in the industry like 18 years by that point, and I had helped brands implement technologies like this before, 
But until you actually go through it as a merchant, the theoretical doesn't become the practical. Oh, I do know what you mean. Our our client right now, they had their go live of Enchanto WMS today. And the string of texts on WhatsApp in the last 24 hours has me dizzy. Like those guys are on the ground doing it. And in theory, I understand what they're talking about, but I don't, I'm not there and I haven't spent time in a warehouse. So trying to keep myself up to as up to speed as possible, but that balance between reality and theory and knowing what they're talking about in practical terms is like, there's a divide there. For me to know as much as I can, because we're about to implement, we're about to implement deer into their mix and, and extract the OMS functionality from their WMS tool and bring it on over to deer. And like, in theory, I know what's going to be happening, but am I going to know how to troubleshoot? Am I going to really understand what's happening? I don't know. Yeah. Look, the only two recommendations I would make is for one, make sure you surround yourself with good, really good. And hopefully the business that you're working with has really good solution architects inside that, that can help turn requirements, business requirements into technical functionality or capability. And as long as you've got that, I think you don't necessarily need to have all the answers. You just need to know how to listen. You need to know how to document requirements really well in a systematic way. And then you need to be able to translate those requirements into something that the technical team can understand and architect the solution around. And then the second piece that I would say is that you need to get on the ground as soon as possible and physically visit some of these locations when, when some of your, your warehouse specialists, your warehouse architects, or whoever it is that's actually doing the warehouse design, they're doing the layout, they're doing the architectural design and configuration of the actual systems that are being implemented, et cetera, so you can shadow them, so that you can shadow an implementation right from the point of requirements gathering right through to go live and beyond. And the sooner that you can get on the ground in some of these warehouse locations and see the end result of the technology that you're helping to implement, the more that the theoretical will move into the practical in your own mind, and the easier it will be in the future to visualize the change that you're bringing to life for these merchants. And I know for myself that until I literally had stepped foot in a warehouse and actually saw the technology running on terminals the at the pick pack the pick pack dispatch stations until i saw pickers actually leaving with their pick slips and they had their actual picking trolleys and they were going to the warehouse and they were going on a directed pick which was basically being directed by the system yeah. so we had and all good wms's can segment based on rules can segment inbound orders based on rules and that forms a bulk pick list effectively that runs across multiple orders. And what it does is with its knowledge of the layout of the warehouse and location of the products on the pick list, it will direct pickers using the shortest distance between point A and B, or in this case, point A and Z. It will send them through the warehouse in the shortest distance possible to get them as efficiently through the warehouse to fulfill that pick list and move them from move items, say, for example, from a warehouse location to a picking trolley, and then from the picking trolley to the packing stations or to the carousel that's taking items to the packing stations or however 
And in some cases, there's robotic picking. So they've got fully automated picking robots that go and actually physically go to the shelves. And then they move the products on into a trolley that gets then transported to the front of the warehouse. So it depends on what level of automation we're talking about here. But when you physically see those implementations working, then you see how much more enjoyable those people working in those warehouses, how much more they enjoy their job. And so these segmented picking engines, what they can do are these segmented pick list generation engines. They can do things like, for example, in the first half of the day, maybe they pick all the domestic orders in the first half of the day. And then in the last half of the day after 3 p.m., when the outbound shipping cutoff happens for domestic orders, then they'll pick all of the international orders. Or all the single items orders will often get picked first because they're easier to parcel up and send out. And they make you more efficient. So you do all your single orders, maybe in the first two hours of the day, and then the rest of the day, you do multi, multi-item orders. So there's all sorts of ways to segment your orders so that when they are set up for picking, they're the most efficient for you, but they also end up with the best result for the customer in terms of pace and speed of getting them to the customer. So sometimes there'll be priority shipping that people have paid for on an order And so sometimes the entirety of the orders are segmented by priorities. So if they've paid for priority, say overnight shipping, then maybe those all get picked first and those go out the door first so that they, you can virtually guarantee that they're going to arrive overnight. Maybe they've paid for a slower priority of shipping. So they haven't paid for premium shipping. Maybe they paid for second day air or they've paid for totally non-priority shipping that maybe it's going to take a week to get there. So there's all sorts of permutations of things like this that are really good WMS is capable of doing that brings extreme flexibility and extreme efficiency to the way that these businesses run. And it gives them optionality more than anything else. And it makes it easy for them to manage and maintain based on looking at the whole entire block of orders that need to go out in a given day. That that pick methodology or that pick rule, those pick rules and that those segmentation of those orders into specific pick rules. Those might change on a daily basis or based on a special event, or they can be based on all sorts of different rules. And those may change from day to day and week to week, depending on your pick performance. But more importantly, what it does is it gives you insights into the performance of the people actually doing those jobs. So how many orders is a picker able to pick in a given day? How many pack and dispatch routines is a person working at a packing station, if they're not the same person, if they've got pickers and then they've got packers slash dispatchers, then oftentimes it's broken down even more than that in a very large warehouse operation. How efficient is each one of those people at processing their orders that are sent to them for processing? And now we can start to get insights and analytics into what constitutes someone that's ultra high performance. And maybe we need to now pay them more. Maybe we need to incentivize them better. And we need to reward them more because they're performing so much more out of the ordinary versus kind of everyone else. And they're a cut above and we want to reward that high performance. Or do we need to incentivize our team? If only 10% of our packers are high performance and the rest are not, we need to figure out why that is. And maybe it's the layout of the packing station. Maybe it's the type of data we're putting in front of them and the difficulty of accessing that data. Maybe it's that things are not ergonomic or that they don't have easy access. Maybe they got to take an extra five steps to get to cartons that they need to fold up before they can actually put items in it. Or maybe we need to break down into smaller 
pieces because we can think of a warehouse almost like an assembly line, right? There's an assembly line of processes that need to happen. There's the put away, there's the receding, there's the put away, there is the picking, there's the packing, there's the dispatching, there's, there's replenishment, there is quarantining of products that have been returned, there's inspections, there's, there's all sorts of things. Maybe there's gift wrapping, there's all sorts of different tasks to be done in those processes. And when we think about it, like an assembly line, we're trying to optimize that assembly line for efficiency, but where there's humans involved, we can't solely optimize for efficiency. We also have to optimize for job satisfaction and fulfillment and sustainability across our teams, right? And so there's just so many lenses to look at all of these things, but specifically where you're talking about warehouses that can sometimes be really hot, depending on where they're located, sometimes be really cold, depending on where they're located. They can be harsh working environments. They can be dangerous working environments, especially if you've got forklifts operating. But there's just, there's so much to these different types of logistics operations. And then when we think about some warehouses have internal capabilities around, say, first mile or middle mile delivery. So sometimes they even have their own trucks that maybe operate locally, but then where they can't deliver locally, they will work with a third-party carrier that they'll hand off to a UPS or a FedEx or a DHL or whatever it might be. And so there's just so many different facets to think about in the logistics game that it is intensely complex. And I don't pretend to know it all by any stretch of the imagination. I know it through one lens of several implementations, but it is, it's super interesting work. It's super engaging and it's super rewarding work because it has the potential to dramatically change the performance of a business and the experience that their customers have with them. Let me ask you something. In terms of big picture, career track, strategizing for myself, I find myself asking, where's the area of greatest opportunity? Where do I fit in? Where can I be of most value? What's needed? How can I bring who I am forward in a a useful way to an organization? And I'm still trying to figure that out. And one way could be fractional operations management. One way could be project management. One way could be procurement and tech stack advisory. There's so many different ways that I could insert myself and I'm just not sure what makes the most sense and, and where I'd shine and be valued. I've made a lot of mistakes so far. And in, in terms of the, the project management, because I've been plugging everything into Airtable and using that as a project management tool, not necessarily working quite as I'd hoped, but the vendors have their own project managers. And so then it's like me micromanaging them. And, and, but my client is really craving me to be a project manager, to tell her what I need to, what I need her to do, where are we at, exactly what's happening, because she doesn't want to read through the software vendor's Gantt chart and figure out every single detail. She just wants me to communicate. Here's where we're at. So anyway, I know I'm asking a whole bunch of jumbled questions to you, but I'm just not sure where to focus. Yeah, I what I would say, and again, obviously I've only known you for two seconds, but and I wouldn't pretend to know in detail yet where your strengths and weaknesses may be yet. But 
what you've described is actually more of a program manager than a project manager. So what your client is asking for is program management, not project management. So we have- That's true, because there are a variety of projects. Each software implementation is a project and doing SOPs for everything is a project and coordinating the, the optimization and efficiency of the entire operations team is- part of the program. I'm mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, I think you're right. So I would describe that absolutely as program management. So you're managing okay. multiple streams of work or multiple projects in parallel for mm-hmm. unified delivery for the client, right? So yeah. and rightly each vendor is going to have each vendor or partner who's doing the implementation of the technology because oftentimes the vendors won't be doing the implementation. They'll have partners that will be doing the implementation. They'll just be providing the software. There's a variety of different go-to-market Um, models that each of these vendors will use. Oftentimes in the early stages of their technology going to market, they will have to do the implementations because they'll need to seed the market with their technology to generate demand before they can take on partners who can ultimately be trained up to implement the technology. For example, and I'll make a very tangible example of this for you. So when you think of Shopify, you cannot go to Shopify and get them to design and implement a Shopify site for you. They provide a subscription service for their software, but if you want customization done to Shopify, you work with a Shopify agency partner that can Mm -hmm. customize and do that implementation and do the configuration of the platform for you, system integrate it with other technologies, et cetera. So you don't go to the vendor in that case or big commerce or Salesforce or Vtex. They don't, they're the vendor. There's a software Mm -hmm. vendor. They build products, right? Mm -hmm. They don't do it. They don't do professional services. They build product. They don't do managed services they provide product. And so sometimes there's a little bit of a hybrid, but what I have found in the industry is that great product companies are usually really shit at professional and managed services. And usually managed services companies are really shit at making product because it's very difficult to do both very well. Very difficult. Some try to, but it's very difficult to do both well. And so as a result of that, I like to see companies that are new, they've brought out a new piece of technology. Maybe they've started out doing their own implementations. They started out doing their own project management. They started out doing all their own solution architecture and doing everything to get their platform implemented. But what I like to see is those technologies evolve past that as quickly as possible. So build a partner ecosystem, an implementation partner ecosystem as fast as possible so that they can focus on building the best bloody product in their category that they can. Now, that's not always the case. And for some, when we think of somebody like a NetSuite, they've never gotten out of the implementation game. They still implement their own technology in competition with their own implementation partners. And so they, they compete with the channel for implementation work of their own software. Now, okay. I've worked with NetSuite directly and their implementations are shit. Every single time I've worked with NetSuite directly, they're rubbish at it. Their product is amazing. NetSuite is an amazing platform and I recommend it to a lot of clients, but their implementation is terrible and their partners tend to do a significantly better job than they do implementing their own technology. I've seen that in action when I worked for the technology company because we had, it was DNS. It was like, I, I was on the mini team and the Lexus and General Motors and Hyundai and managing implementations and uh, I wasn't the implementation manager or the onboarding manager. I was the account manager, but I oversaw the whole process from sign up to successful utilization and optimization of the software tool. And the biggest sticky point 
always was the implementation because the implementation managers would talk and talk and talk and talk and go through all their rubric and they were, they bored the client to death. And I just didn't see it. I hardly saw any good implementations. They were just laborious and painful. Yeah. And one of the reasons why that often is the case is because they don't make the bulk of their money off of implementations. They make the bulk of the money off of the software. And so because implementation is just a route to getting the customer onto the software and paying for the yeah. software, either as an annual licensing fee or monthly subscription yeah. fee or whatever it is, the whole point of implementation is just to get to the point where the client is a paying subscriber of the software. And so it's a necessary evil inside of these technology companies in many cases. They'd prefer not to do it. If they had a good partner ecosystem, they wouldn't need to do implementations, but oftentimes they are not yet well-known enough to have enough demand coming in to be able to then say, okay, we're going to funnel all these leads off to our partner ecosystem and say, look, we'll sell you the software, just like Shopify will sell you the software or Big Commerce will sell you the software or whatever, but we're going to point you in the direction. If you don't already have a partner in mind, we can point you to someone who can do the implementation because that's their bread and butter. That's what they do. They are not a product, they are not a product company. They are a professional and managed services business. And that's what they do as their core business model and is that's delivering what's services. Happening with Deer right now, the client just signed up with Sin7 Core. They bought the $1,500 implement onboarding package and they recommended an implementation specialist, an agency. And they really like them and they'll probably go with them too. And so then, and then a part of me is feeling, okay, then where do I fit in? Who am I going to navigate this? I'm not like, am I going to be useful? How can I be useful? So my entire business is built on being the glue that ties a project together. So I, I don't, I'm not strictly a program manager, although oftentimes I'm roped into program management. That's oftentimes what, so most of my engagements consist of the initial discovery, the initial deep dive investigation into a business of what they need to move to the next stage of their growth and to be able to allow them to scale efficiently, to be able to allow them to scale without chucking a whole bunch of bodies at their business and be able to transition from legacy technology to better technology, being able to translate analog processes into digital processes, being, to, being able to do organizational design that is more modern in nature, that suits modern ways of working. And yeah, then this is, all, this is the language I need to learn. Yeah. So really all it is, is going in and helping these businesses to understand what they don't know, helping them see around corners, and then ultimately helping them redesign and architect their data for digital channels. Because most of the time their data is in a disastrous state and is not ready in any way, shape or form for digital channels. It's just not ready for that. Secondarily, helping them do search and select for technology, helping them do search and select for partners to implement that technology, and then helping them build out the solution architecture at a high level for the entire stack and how that stack is going to work together. Now, I would say in excess of 80% of the time, I'm brought in when a company is trying to replatform their e-commerce technology, meaning they're, I don't know, maybe they're, they want to move from Magento to something else. Maybe they don't even know what they want to move to, but they're just not happy with their current e-commerce technology. And so they bring me in to what they think is going to be a pure e-commerce project. But then when I get into their business and I get under the bonnet, I realize, oh God, their ERP is a legacy disaster. Their data is a disaster. They're, they don't have an OMS. They don't have a WMS. They don't have a PIM system, product information management system. And they really need one because the product catalog is huge and complex. 
they don't have XYZ systems or the systems they do have don't share data with one another. And as a result of that, they're extremely inefficient and they do things, everything manually. And there's a lot of double handling in the business. And so oftentimes when I go in and when I'm brought in purely for an e-commerce project, it turns into a much bigger project than that because usually we need to do a lot of back office work data and or systems and or process work. And you do a lot of work before we ever start thinking about an e-commerce replatform or an initial implementation of e-commerce. And so my, prog- my, my projects tend to turn into bigger things when we start getting under the bonnet than what we originally think they're going to be. Fantastic, because then the, it's going to be an ecosystem. It's going to be a seamless, functioning, flowing operations. It's not going to be disconnected. That's, this is exactly what I was hoping to learn more about. Yeah. And I think, look, and the reason that I guess I'm able to do this and how I guess I've managed to differentiate myself from other e-commerce consultants in the market is that the vast majority of e-commerce consultants, A, only focus on the e-commerce platform itself and supplementary technologies at, for example, search and merchandising. They focus on all the marketing capabilities of the platform, marketing automation, maybe CDPs, customer data platforms, et cetera, but they don't really know anything about or understand anything about back office systems. So business management technology, they don't know anything about that because they've always focused on the front end. They've always focused on the customer experience. They've always focused on the marketing piece. They've always focused on everything that's customer facing and nothing that underpins all that customer facing stuff. And and because I guess I've implemented all of the different types of technology that I consult on now, because I've been at the pointy end as a merchant doing those implementations for my for businesses that I've worked in at the time, I have a much more holistic view of what it takes to have these businesses be successful. And I'm very fortunate that I was able to go through these large-scale implementations in these businesses that I was working for at the time, because these are the kinds of things you really can only learn on the job. There's not, you can't go to school for this. You can't get a degree for this. It doesn't exist. There's, there, there is some stuff. Obviously, you can go and get a computer science degree. You can go get an information systems degree. There's certain things that you can go to university for that would help you. You can, go and get, you can go and get certifications in business analysis or project management. There's certain things that you can go and get, but a lot of this is really, you only learn the theoretical stuff. You don't really learn the on-the-ground stuff, which is where the rubber meets the road of theory versus reality. And so for me, I guess because right. I've only ever worked in reality, I really know what it takes to see these projects be successful and to see the client ultimately be successful in their businesses. And so what I would recommend is that maybe before you, I only knew where I could add the most value to businesses because I had done it for so long before. And I had tasted lots of different things in the industry. I'd worked for agencies. I had my own e-commerce pure play. I had worked for some of the biggest e-commerce businesses and omni-channel businesses in ANZ. And over time, it helped me to narrow down the things that A, I was good at, but B, that I could make money at and that there was demand for in the market. Right. And so I, I think that before you jump kind of whole hog into any one thing, whether it's program management, whether it's account management, whether it's project management, whether it's solution architecture and design, whether it whatever it might be that you think initially looks interesting to you in this industry, for lack of a better term, it might not even be, it might not even be specifically in e-commerce. It might be more in business systems. Cause obviously if we're talking about ERPs and CRMs and OMSs and WMSs and IMSs, if we're talking those systems, 
these aren't directly in and of themselves customer facing. The customers don't interface with those systems directly. They interface with those systems through a, a user interface that is usually composed of an e-commerce website or some kind of other system. And I'm fortunate in that I can work on front office systems and back office systems and consult on both. But that's really only because of my unique experience stack that's brought me to this place. And most people won't have that set of experiences that brings them to this place. And so I, I think you need to do a little bit of what I did, which is I got to taste lots of these different things. I knew that I wasn't going to be a project manager. I budget, scope, timeline. There are people that can manage that. Uh, like they're just, they're like generals, right? And they can manage this so well. And they go out and they get a project management credential and they they get so deep into project management and all the nuances of project management. That's something that I don't want to get that deeply involved in a project. I, I wouldn't want to, I don't want to be responsible for every tiny little facet of a project's implementation. That's not where I bring the most value because I'm not, I'm process driven to a degree, but I also have to be able to think outside the box for a lot of clients because they need something that's quite unique to them. But, ba but based on a solid foundation of design patterns, what we use is a term in the industry called design patterns that, and that's effectively a combination of systems and processes that we know work well together to achieve a specific outcome. And once you've been working in this industry for a long time, you start to understand common design patterns that are very successful in specific situations. Maybe it's combining commerce on the front end with NetSuite on the back end with PeopleVox as the WMS and Riversend as the PIM system. For and I'm just giving you one example. And I've helped brands implement that stack or slight variations on that multiple times. And I know it works very well, particularly for retailers. And, and I know how those systems work in very granular detail. I know they how they have to share data with each other in granular detail. And so once you have worked with a, a series of technologies and processes enough, when you've done it enough, repetitively enough, and you've seen it work well enough, then you can adapt that. You can make changes and adjustments to that for specific scenarios. But you only know that when you've done it enough times to know what works and what doesn't work, is what I'm saying. And so right. I think that you're probably a little bit too early in the game yet for you to know, oh, I want to go and be an account manager because effectively then I'm a post-live project manager for the enhancement phase two, phase three, phase four pieces of work post-live. I really like that phase. So I'm going to be an account manager instead of a project manager. Oh, no. Actually, I want to be involved right from the scoping through the implementation phase and beyond. Oh, I like project management. That's cool. That's what I, that's what I want to do. I want to do the professional services. So typically, not always, but typically the division between professional services and managed services. They are typically two different sets of services that a business will offer. Some will offer both sets of services. Some will offer one and not the other. Professional services is usually the initial implementation. So there's a project to be done, a discrete set of services to be delivered to get someone live. Then there's managed services, which is an ongoing series of services post live, usually under retainer, that then there's en the enhancement phase, there's the maintenance phase, there's, the, there's all these post-live phases that need additional services delivered to them. Like a CSM, like a customer success manager. Or an account manager. The CSMs and AEs, they're AEs and AMs, they're, those terms are sometimes used a little bit interchangeably because oftentimes they're, they're doing similar types of jobs and roles, but they're effectively mm -hmm. highly consultative post-live project managers is really what they are. 
that's usually, and oftentimes you'll see really good project managers. They'll, when they get bored of project management, because it's too rigid and it's too, it's too process driven, and they want to be a little bit more consultative in nature, as opposed to just documenting requirements. They want to help the customer for, formulate a roadmap of requirements over time. And they want to do that in a consultative way and help them improve their business, as opposed to just make sure an implementation is done properly. Mm-hmm. Then they'll move from the professional services side of the business, which is the project side, the implementation side, to the post-live side, and they'll become an AE or they'll become a CSM or whatever it is that they're going to be. So I think that, like I said, I think you're probably a little bit too early to know with 100% certainty which thing you're going to enjoy the most. And you know, which role you're going to enjoy the most and whether you're going to, you may eventually get to a point, if you do a bit of project management, maybe do a bit of program management, and then maybe eventually you do some CSM work, you might decide, actually, I now know enough about all these processes end to end, right from the point of the initial discussions with the client and right from opening that can of worms, which sometimes can feel very overwhelming in that first conversation you have with them. Sometimes when I, when I first start talking to clients, it used to be incredibly, when I was earlier in my career, it used to be incredibly intimidating because I was oftentimes speaking to people at board level. I can't imagine you intimidated. It, 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 it's true. Sometimes you have to fake it until you make it, but you have to have yeah. the best of intentions. And I always did. And I would always figure out what I didn't know. And I would always work hard enough to make sure that the customer got a great experience anyway. But when I was very early in my career, and particularly when I was working agency side, there were some intimidating environments to go into because you're, I was dealing with people that were much older than me, much more senior than me, with much more experience than me, and yet I was expected to give them guidance and leadership. And that's an intimidating place to be because you feel you can feel a bit of the you can feel like a bit of a fake at times because you're going, God, I don't know that I know any more than they do, but you but you soon work out. Actually, in my domain, I only need to know that much more than they do to add value to their business. I don't need to know that much more than them. I just need to know a bit more than them. Now, the more that I know over and above what they know, the more value I can add. But as long as I know something specific that they don't because of my unique combination of of skills and experience, I can add value and I can add value to that conversation. I don't need to know everything, but I need to know how to get the answers to the questions that they are asking. And so I was very fortunate in that I was put into situations that I probably shouldn't have been in that early in my career. So dropped in the deep end on more than one occasion and expected to figure things out and expecting to deliver, expected to deliver really good work for clients. Mm -hmm. And at the time that was scary and it was stressful and I'd leave these meetings with knots in my stomach. And it was truly genuinely overwhelming at the time. But I think that there's no better way to learn on the job than in an agency environment. You will learn more in an agency environment. So there's three major areas that you can work in our industry. You can work agency side, you can work vendor side, or you can work merchant side. Those are the three places that you can usually find work in our industry, assuming you're not an independent consultant like me or something that's a little bit as a, a little bit of an outlier. You're usually either an agency, a vendor, or you're a merchant, one of the three. And I've been fortunate in that I've worked in two of those, and I've almost worked in a third because I've worked so closely with vendors for so long, I really truly understand 
what vendors go through and how they operate, even though I haven't been employed by vendors before. And technically, now that I'm an investor in Mikado, I guess I now have worked vendor side too. Yeah, I guess I've got the trifecta of experience now, which I'm very fortunate to have had that trifecta of experience. And you, for example, I would suggest that most likely by working agency side, whether that be for a consultancy or for a, a, an implementation agency for one of these technologies, you will learn more in a compressed amount of time than you can learn any other way. And the reason for that is if you work for a merchant, you're only going to ever see one or two significant projects in the time that you're there, just in, in the nature of merchants. They can't be in a constant state of disruption in their business. They need to get to a place where they've got scalable systems that are sta stable, that are not constantly changing with processes that are somewhat stable and they're not constantly changing and disrupting the business. Whereas in agency land, you're exposed to many different businesses, many different go-to-market models, many different product types, many different categories, many different niches, many different markets and regions of the world, many different tech stacks, both existing and future. You are just exposed to so much more in such a short period of time that you just learn at a faster rate. Now, can most people do agency work long-term? No, they can't. And the reason for that is because it is extremely stressful. You generally do massive hours working for an agency. And it doesn't always generate the healthiest of lifestyles because of that. You generally are having to schmooze to agree with clients and pre-COVID anyway, there was an expectation that you would be maybe going out to dinners and drinking with clients. And it just doesn't always engender the healthiest of personal habits when you are working agency side. It's extremely demanding and it's usually huge hours and you're usually working on multiple projects in tandem. And as a result of that, you know, that baseline of stress that you feel when you're working in the agency environment tends to be very high. So most people can do around what, in my experience, what I've seen working agency side, most people can do agency work for around five years, maybe five to eight years before they get burnt out and they go, shit, okay, I need to, I've learned a shitload, but I now need to move away from agency work. And I now need to maybe work merchant side for a while to, to slow down the pace of the effort to go deep instead of wide on my role. And I need to be able to embed myself in a business over a longer period of time to where the pace of change is not quite as fast. But then by definition, the pace of learning won't be quite as fast either. So my recommendation would probably be for somebody like you is, hey, let's maybe see if there's an agency that we can work for and with. You know, Because agencies tend to have, they tend to have project managers. They tend to have solution architects. They tend to have business analysts. They tend to have account managers or CSMs. They tend to have, and then they of course have developers if they're a development agency, or they tend to have specialist marketers if they're a marketing agency, or they have specialist designers if they're a design and creative agency, or they have specialist analytics consultants if they're an analytics and data agency. So it depends on what their specialization is. They will, you can, if an agency can't tell you what their specialization is, first of all, that would be a red flag for me because every agency has a specialization. Okay. Um, so oftentimes you'll hear an agency say, we're a full service agency. Well, what the fuck does that mean? There's no such thing. Every agency has a specialization. And if you want to know what their specialization is, you simply ask them, what are the roles available within this business and how many people do you have working in each? Okay. So in, in an e-commerce development agency where their specialization is development, they'll have 30 developers. They'll have maybe two solution architects, maybe a BA or two maybe three project managers and maybe three account managers, right? 
So in that scenario, you know what their specialization is because they have 30 developers and then everything else, right? Or if they're a creative agency, they'll have 10 designers or 12 designers and everybody else. They'll, if they're an analytics and data agency, then maybe they'll have, maybe they'll have 25 data analysts and then everybody else, right? Or, or 25 data analysts, two data scientists and everybody else. And so anytime an agency says that they're full service, I go and tell me the roles you have and tell me how many people are working in each. And I'll say, no, you're not. You are this kind of agency because that's your priority and that's your focus. And that's what you've resourced against. That's the scalable part of your business, right? So when I was running an e-commerce development agency, we had 40 developers and everybody else. So we were a dev focus. That's the part of the business that could scale. We couldn't scale consulting. We couldn't scale project management to a degree. We, we could only take on so much work, but the people where we made the most profit in the business, the part of the business that we could scale the fastest was development. So the quicker we could get something from solution design into solution development, the faster we could get them out of that messy first bit and actually into the engine room of the business, which was development, the faster we could start making money off of that client. Because the front end bit wasn't really that profitable because yeah, sure, they were paying for the time, but that time is so specialized that it doesn't scale. So you have a solution architect, you have one or two solution architects in the whole business, right? And so that's where the bottleneck tends to be. It's not the development part of the business, it's the front end and the back end. And I said all that to basically say, agencies will always have a specialization, but they will tend to have, even within that specialization, they will tend to have multiple roles that you can test and try. Now you may, if you say, for example, went to work for an e-commerce development agency, you may never want to be involved with development, but you may want to taste business analysis and that, that role in the business and what that looks like. You may mm -hmm. want to taste project management. You want to taste account management over the time that you're there. And you may want to shift between these roles over time within the same organization so that you can get a feel for the end-to-end -end service offering that the business offers. And only then will you go, ah, oh, I love that bit but I don't really like that bit. So right. I'd really like to go deep on that bit there, but I don't think I'll go and do that bit again because that's not really a good fit for my personality. Yeah, I do. Exactly. So when I've been researching like, what trying to find thought leaders, trying to find like job descriptions, I can learn more about the language people are using. And it seems in my searches that everything is about for e-commerce, e-commerce operations, everything is about marketing. It's rare that I, that's why I was, I, when I found you, I was so glad because you were talking about the things that I was interested in. How do I do research on e-commerce agencies that are going to be post-sale oriented? Yeah. What, if you are really more interested in the technical and operational side of e-commerce versus the marketing side of e-commerce, which is where my interest is in the services. So I don't, I'm not going to go and manage campaigns for a brand. That's, I don't do the marketing. I, I understand the intersect between technology, customer experience, and marketing. And therefore, I help brands implement or at least design in the technology that will make, that will give their marketers superpowers. I get that. And I can help empower the marketing team within their business with both technology and data to do their job better and to create a better customer experience on the backside of it. But my focus is on the technology and the operations and the solution design to make that happen. And so what it sounds like to me is you're orientated in a similar way that 
operations and tech and the enablement that brings to businesses is something that intensely interests you and optimization of processes and digitalization of processes is something that interests you, then you need to be working for a technical agency, not a marketing agency, right? That's the difference. And so when we think of, so sometimes you may hear it said or called an e-commerce agency or an e-commerce development agency or a e-commerce technical agency. There's some, there's different terminology that agencies will use for themselves. At Mustache Republic, which I ran for a couple of years, we just called ourselves an e-commerce agency. We were not a marketing agency. We were an e-commerce agency. So we were doing creative design for e-commerce. So we were creating the UI and UX experience for e-commerce. Then we were implementing that on top of specific tech stacks, and we were integrating systems together to make that happen. And I so do want, I do want a holistic viewpoint. I do recognize the inherent importance of the one voice to the customer and having the marketing team to be able to share the data and having, having the teams be able to, to collaborate and support each other's activities. So mm-hmm. it's not that I'm not interested in marketing. I just don't want to be knee deep in Google Analytics and in marketing strategy, marketing tactics, marketing implementation, campaign management, all that stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. And and I get that. Now, some agencies, some e-commerce agencies will at least at the start of their journey, they will sometimes offer both technical implementation and marketing services in almost two different divisions of the business. Now, most agencies don't end up doing that for very long, and they end up specializing in one or the other because you can do, if your agency is trying to do everything, full service, back to that term again, which doesn't really exist, but if you're trying to be more full service, the challenge is you could do shit hot implementation work, but if the marketing side of the business isn't driving revenue for them and isn't driving profitability, then they will dump you for everything, including marketing and tech, vice versa. You could be doing, you could be killing it from a marketing perspective. But if from a technical perspective, you're struggling on implementations and you're struggling on the quality of work, the speed of work, all that sort of stuff, then they will can you for the whole lot usually. It's very rare that they'll say, oh, you're doing a great job on marketing. So we'll keep you for the marketing, but we'll find another development agency to work with or vice versa. It's very rare that they'll say, you're killing it from a development perspective. So we'll keep you for that, but we'll jettison you for the marketing piece, right? Especially if they came to you originally with the idea, we want a single throat to choke. You're going to tell us what we need to do from a marketing perspective and all the tech to support it. And you're going to do the implementation of the tech to support it at the same time. So that's the promise. That's a promise of a full full service agency, but rarely does the reality measure up with the promise because it's so fucking hard to do. It is so difficult to deliver at an ultra high level from a technical and operational perspective and from a marketing perspective. It is just really hard. Different and the, your brain. And different resources. They're completely different resources yeah. that you have to have in the business, right? And yeah. it's usually better if a technical agency has one or two go-to partners that they have that do marketing so that if a customer comes to them and says, hey, we don't have a marketing agency and we don't have a dev agency, cool, we'll do your development. But here's a couple of marketing agencies, depending on whether you need email marketing, performance marketing, content marketing, depends on what type of marketing you need and not only social media marketing. Yeah, whatever it might be, right? And it's better usually if those technical agencies will have one or two strategic partners that they can say, hey, we don't do this work, but we have a couple of partners we trust and we work closely with. And we recommend you go and have a discussion with them. We can do an introduction to them and you can have a conversation to see which one 
fits you and your budget, et cetera. And then we can work closely with them, for example, for Google Tag Manager implementation, analytics implementation, and rich snippets, and all the other things that require a technical developer to implement. So the marketing agency isn't going to do that. They're going to, they're going to create a tagging guide usually that then gets handed off to the implementation agency to code in and to implement, right? And that partnership can work really well. If you have each party specializing in what they're really good at, but they have a really close working relationship with each other. And that's where a program manager can be really beneficial for these businesses because each agency will usually have a project manager or an, an account manager on their teams that are managing their pieces of work independently. And oftentimes the technical agency is expected to be the program manager as well. That's mm-hmm. oftentimes the role that they take on, whether they want to or not, because they're doing all the heavy lifting from a technical perspective, they usually have to take on the role of program manager because the concentration of dependencies rests with them. Meaning that sure, there are other parties that are doing little bits of work, relatively speaking, but the development agency is usually doing the bulk of the work. If we were to look at overall hours on a project, they're doing like something like 60 to 75% of the overall hours on a project. And so therefore, they're oftentimes expected, oh, aren't you going to manage Aren't you going to manage all the vendors? And aren't you going to manage all the other partners? And aren't you going to make sure that the dependencies are resolved? Yes, they oftentimes are forced to, but it's not necessarily what they're best at. And that's where an independent program manager can be super valuable. Even a fractional program manager can be super valuable in that they are the glue, they are the traffic cop that liaises with all of the parties that are having to deliver against a specific timeline and set of dependencies so that each individual party can do their best work and can deliver not only on scope, but time and budget. And But it'll be difficult for you to step in and take the role of program manager until you have project managed a few projects from those individual delivery parties. Until you've done that a few times, it'll be hard for you to understand what they're going through. So I speak the language of agencies because I've worked in, I've worked in and run agencies. I speak the language of merchants because I was a merchant. And I speak the language of vendors because I've worked with so many vendors over the years. And so I I know how to get the best out of these three parties. And that's what makes me a pretty good program manager that sits as an umbrella. I act as the glue. Once we've got through all of the original solution architecture, requirements, gathering, and documentation, and then we get into implementation, I function as a really good program manager because I can make sure that all these parties are talking to each other and communicating consistently, that we set up regular WIPs, work in progress meetings between all the involved parties as a project progresses, that I make sure that what everybody has committed to, they're actually delivering on, that I make sure that any blockers get resolved quickly. I had a a situation recently where a vendor completely overlooked a requirement that was communicated to them months before. So we're talking a tech vendor here, not the partner that was doing the implementation, but the tech vendor themselves overlooked a critical requirement of a project And we only found out once we got into UAT, so user acceptance testing, when the merchant was testing out the solution, it was like, this doesn't work the way that we need it to work and the way that we were told it would work. And no one, including the vendor, could figure out a way to resolve this requirement. So what I, and I saw, so I'm on the email trail of every email communication across every vendor and my client, right? So I'm on like 
20 email threads at a given time. And I saw, and I, and by the time I saw the fifth email bounce backwards and forwards on, on list, I'm like, no, this is, this, we're never going to get a resolution this way. So I came back to the email thread and I said, look, my suggestion is we've now had five emails on the subject. We don't look like we're any closer to a resolution. Let's jump on a quick call. Let's schedule 30 minutes in and let's see if we can figure this out together. We need to get all the experts sitting around the table discussing this in one concentrated effort. And I get, almost guarantee you we'll find a solution. We jumped on the call. Within 15 minutes, I had actually thought of a solution that would work for all parties. And I thought of a supplementary bit of data matching that we could do that the vendor goes, oh, actually, we do have the ability to do that using this methodology. I just completely didn't. This was the solution architect on the vendor's side. They said, I didn't even think of this because we almost never have to do this. It's a very rare requirement. And as a result of that, I didn't even think of it. But now that you mention it, we can actually do this. We just need another integration. We need another piece of data coming into our system that we can then synthesize, and then we can send it back out via integration as well. And so literally within 15 minutes of us jumping on a call, we had identified the core root of the problem. We had identified a potential resolution, and we put together an action plan for all of the parties to go away and execute on. And now we're back on track again. Now, that is the type of on-the-fly solutioning is what I call it that you can only do when you have been through the ringer for 20 plus, and obviously it doesn't necessarily take 20 years, but if you've been doing what I've been doing for as long as I've been doing it, solutions to problems that other people cannot see, just because you've had to deal with problem solving so many times before, there's always a solution. Some, somehow, some way, there's always a solution. And sometimes everybody is so intent on defending their patch, meaning that they don't, no one wants to put up their hand and say, oh, I overlooked that requirement. Shit, we fucked up. No one wants to admit they fucked up, right? So without putting blame on anyone, I can be an in, impartial third party that says, let's not talk blame here. Let's just talk solutions. What can we do to... First of all, we need to really clearly identify and articulate the problem. That's the first thing we need to do. Because unless we're all on the same page about what the fucking problem is, we can't solve it. Then once we've articulated it, we're really clear and the merchant is really clear on what the problem is. Then we need to get really clear about what potential solution or solutions there are that we can investigate together. And then once we've done that, let's formulate a plan of attack to deal with this problem within a no blame. Let's, there's usually in almost all these types of situations, there's plenty of blame to go around, meaning everybody can wear a little bit of blame, the agency, the vendor, the client, me, there's always blame to go around. So if we take the focus off the blame aspect and we focus on the solution aspect, then usually we can get past any impasse. But sometimes it takes that independent third party to make that happen, right? But the only reason that I'm able to do that is because I've been in the agency seat. <laughs> I've worked with vendors for a long time. So I know 100% what their perspective is yeah. all of the time. I get it. And I've been in the merchant seat. So I know what it feels like to be in the merchant seat to go, fuck, I don't give a fuck what has to happen to fix this problem? I just want it fixed because you all knew that we needed this piece of functionality because we told you right from day dot, we needed to be able to do this thing. And I don't give a fuck how it happens, but it needs to happen because we can't get through UAT without it happening. It's a core requirement that we cannot do without. And so I guess, yeah, th there's a whole lot of psychology involved in how you work with large groups of people trying to deliver on a common purpose. There's a lot of psychology behind that. There is. And it seems like you would like that side of it. I think I would. I think I really would. And I really like the idea of having, being able to go up and down, go into the weeds a bit and 
be able to see things from a holistic big picture angle and and bring perspective to a situation because when you're the client you're, you're too close to it I like the idea of being able to learn how to ask good questions and make sure we're driving towards the right goals and not getting sidetracked on what it is we're trying to accomplish and I want to figure out a way to like bridge that gap of the functionality of a technology tool versus what is it really doing for the person making their job better like that language and really constantly bringing it back to what does it do how does it help because you can get really lost in the language of of functionality and not even know what you're talking about if you're just using industry speak all the time and look technology in and of itself it doesn't solve anything without people. And so for me, technology is just an enabler. That's all it is. It's a very important enabler, but it's just an enabler. It is not, if you've got fundamental people issues in your business, if you've got fundamental process issues in your business, no technology is going to fix that, right? No technology is going to, in and of itself, there is no technology that is that much of a silver bullet. Otherwise, everybody on the planet would be running that same technology. But the fact that we have thousands within almost every single software category, we have hundreds and or thousands of vendors trying to solve for very similar problems, right? And so the reality is there is no such thing as a technical silver bullet. Now, what there is are inerrant built-in processes that are default processes associated with certain pieces of technology or certain vendors' versions of technology. Now, that can be helpful in absence of existing processes that are working. And what I mean by that is, so for example, if a B2B business has never done e-commerce before, then every single sales process that they have engineered from the beginning of their business till now has all been centered on human beings running and managing almost every single aspect of that sales process. So it's a sales rep knocking on doors. It's a sales rep building a relationship with the customer. It's a sales rep onboarding the customer. It's a sales rep taking orders from the customer. It's a sales rep emailing the customer or ringing the customer. It's a sales rep taking the order from the customer and manually inputting it into an ERP or a WMS and making sure that order goes out the door to the customer. It's all of the above and it's all manual may be augmented with a Zoom call here and there or email here and there or whatever, but it's largely manual in nature, right? And so when I say absence of processes, in that scenario, there's almost a complete absence of any kind of digital version of those processes. The request a quote process, the respond to quote process, it's all manual, right? And certain technologies that you can implement will have built-in default processes to do all those things, but in a digital way. And in some scenarios, that's those out-of-the-box processes are totally fine. They may have to be adapted. They may have to be tweaked. They may have to be adjusted. In large part, the 80-20 rule, 80% of them, 80% of those built-in processes are better than what that business has anyway. And they're certainly digital equivalents of what that business has. And so sometimes adopting a piece of technology will also mean adopting the default processes of that piece of technology, and that can be transformative, right? But it is not a complete replacement for the business thinking about what is the type of experience we want our customers to have and that they're asking for 
And how can we deliver on that, right? It doesn't allow you to abdicate your responsibility to build something that is of value to your customers, right? It can help you get there, but it is not a replacement for the human element. It is an augmentation of the human element. And this is what, to me, technology does. It augments humans. It doesn't replace them. I said all that to say, I think that a lot of what I talk about in this arena, it's based on just witnessing humans working with technology over a long period of time, seeing what works, seeing what doesn't, and trying to help people see around corners that they couldn't see around on their own. Because for me, large part of what I do is just simply de-risking projects for clients. Right. It's how can I remove as many of the risks of project failure, budget overruns, people not being happy, people leaving the business. How can I de-risk as much of that as possible? I'll never be able to de-risk it 100%. But how can I de-risk that as much as possible? Because there is nothing business owners or leaders hate more than surprises. They don't like surprise project timeline overruns. They don't like surprise budget overruns. They don't surprise anything. The less surprises, the better for business leaders, right? so that they can budget effectively and resource effectively and all those sorts of things. They need to have a certain amount of predictability around the outcome of a project. So what they're paying me for is more predictability. So I've got a lot of homework. This is fantastic information. Might you be able to give me some input as to some agencies that you trust that I could research? What I think you should be looking for, sorry, is let me boil this down. You should be looking for a great boss, not necessarily a great business, because you will be working underneath somebody and you want to get as close to the nexus, not necessarily of power, but as close to the nexus of learning as you can. So what I mean by that is, is if you can get yourself in an environment where you can learn more faster because you're able to be exposed to more facets of a business faster, that to me is a great learning opportunity. So it doesn't even necessarily matter if they're working with the latest, greatest technology. It doesn't necessarily matter if they're the most well-known or the busiest. It more matters how much can I learn, how fast can I learn it, and how supportive of an environment am I learning in? And that mostly comes down to a boss, not the business, right? So you could be working for the greatest business there is and the most famous and whatever. But if your immediate superior that you're going to be working under and hopefully mentored by, if they're shit, if they're just not that good of a human being for whatever reason, or they're just not that supportive, then your growth will be stunted in that role, regardless of how successful that business may be. So I would focus probably a little bit more on who would be my, who would I report directly to and what experiences do they have and what kind of human being are they? I've just seen that repeat over and over again in my career. If you'd like to get mentored by Jason for free, head over to greenwoodconsulting.net, scroll to the bottom of the page and click get mentored by Jason.